We'll be studying chapter 20, verse 12 through the end of the book. It's a very long section. These are what are referred to as Old Testament narratives. When you read a narrative like this, and it's any time you go to the Word and you're studying an account about an historical event, what you do is basically do this. You take the text that you're reading and you just sort of squeeze it through to get the principles that the Lord is teaching us as we read through the narratives. We grow tremendously when we look for application points in our own hearts when we look at narratives. Last week, David provided the shameful account of the Levite whose concubine was raped and presumably murdered by men of Gibeah, a town of the tribe of Benjamin in Saul's hometown. And all that occurred, of course, in the portion of Judges that he we had read last week. As we begin following up from that, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we pray for supernatural wisdom and discernment as we seek to find the application points from these long texts today as we apply them faithfully in our own hearts. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that enlightens our minds and hearts to those things that you teach us through the Word. In Jesus' name, amen. Laughter the concubine was raped and presumably murdered. On the following day, the Levite took his probably deceased concubine, left Gibeah, and he made his way home to the hill country of Ephraim, that, by the way, is the tribe immediately to the north of Benjamin, which is the location where all of this occurred. It was there in his home that he, quoting Judges 19, verse 29, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. When the representatives of the various tribes received these gruesome remains, they said this, again quoting, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Now as David told us last week from the first part of Judges 20, a call went out for all the people of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. When you see that in the Old Testament, it's like sea to signing sheep. Sea to signing sheep. She shed by the seashore. <laughs> the whole land is what that meant. And why were they calling them? That is to join forces to exact justice to deal with the shameful thing that had been done in Gibeah. Interesting response. We're going to go deal with what was going on down there. More on that in a minute. We then saw in chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, that, and I'm quoting, the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah, and the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. That's a pretty big army. Now, representatives of the tribes sought out the Levite to ask him what had happened, and on hearing his explanation, we see verse 8, that the people arose as one man saying, none of us will go to his tent and none of us will return to his house, for this is what we'll do to Gibeah. So what happened after that, you may recall, was they kind of mapped out a military plan to deal with what one, one writer called the moral outrage committed by the men of Gibeah. 
And the plan was simple. Look at verses 9 to 11. But now this is what we'll do to Gibeah. We'll go up against it by lot. We'll take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel and a hundred of a thousand and a thousand of ten thousand to bring provisions for the people that when they come they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city united as one man. So obviously the logistics for feeding and equipping an army of 400,000 is no easy matter. So in their war council they decided that one out of every ten men would be responsible for providing food for those who were fighting at the front lines. What we actually get from this is that Israel was extraordinarily serious about mobilizing militarily to deal with what was going on and what was properly, probably still going on unchecked in Gibeah, which was, of course, the unrestrained Sodom-like prevalence of homosexuality and then the obvious lawlessness that was common sense and commonly practiced among the Canaanites. Let's remember this. The events of chapters 19 to 21 actually took place early in the period of the judges when the tribal occupation of the promised land was still in its early stages. Y'all remember Joshua led the national conquest all through Canaan and then it was the responsibility of the several tribes to go in and do the mop-up work. That's when all this was beginning. That's when all this took place as the tribal occupation was beginning. Now what meant what that meant was the corrupt, the evil influence of the occupants of the promised land as explained by both Moses and Joshua. That was obvious and detestable. And at least at that point, the people were doing everything they possibly could to do what they were encouraged by Joshua to do. And that is, wipe them out entirely. That's the stage at which this happened. So 400,000 men come together for the purpose of doing what they were encouraged to do by Joshua. We know the dating, by the way. David pointed this out as well. You'll notice in chapter 20, verses 27 and 28, that they consulted Phinehas. That is the second in line after Aaron. And he was, Phinehas was the priest in the tabernacle in the days of Joshua. He's the guy that was consulted by Israel concerning their war effort against Benjamin. And it's interesting to see that at least in this relatively early part of the period of the judges, there was a collective effort to do what Joshua had told them to do, and that is rid the land of idol-worshiping evil occupants that would be there among the children of Israel if they didn't do their job. As we've seen, that collective effort seems not to have remained a priority very long. That's basically the rest of the book of Judges. Now, here's an interesting question. Is there an application point for us when you think about the advantage of doing it collectively together versus undertaking an effort to deal with evil when you're by yourself? And, of course, the application point is there's strength in the numbers of the body of Christ. The body of Christ may not be helpful to us in our quiet moments when we're disposed to do something that is inconsistent with our commitment to Christ. But the accountability, the inferred accountability that comes when 
Lord's Day by Lord's Day. We are here in the house of God, hearing the word taught and encouraged by others. It's the same thing that at least at that time was happening in Israel. People collectively resolved to deal with evil. Now, as all the war planning was going on with Israel, we see in verse 3 that the people of Benjamin heard the heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. Benjamin wisely figured that storm clouds were on the horizon. And as we see, they were not going to be called by surprise. And by the way, they were a warring bunch. It's interesting to look back to Genesis 49 when Jacob blessed his children. Everybody remembers that story. It's, it's interesting to see what he said about Benjamin. It's verses, actually, it's only verse 27 where he said this, and it's the last of all of his words to his kids. He said this, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. And as we'll read in a moment, his descendants earned that reputation. But before Israel took any military action, the passage today explains that representatives of the tribes that were assembled at Mizpah for the attack they sent a delegation to demand that the leaders in Benjamin surrendered all the worthless fellows who had raped and possibly killed the concubine. In other words, they said this, turn over the evil guys and there'll be no war. But if you don't do that, there will be war. Now, was that a good plan to attempt to deal with those people at that level? That is by negotiation. Yes, sir. Great plan. And frankly... It's a good plan for all of us. If we have ought against another brother or sister, what does Scripture say we're supposed to do? Go to them and deal with them. Matthew 5, Matthew 18. And we see it reflected right here. And it's at that point we pick up today's long reading, beginning at verse 12. And as we read about the conflict that breaks out between the tribe of Benjamin acting alone and the rest of all the tribes of Israel We'll consider these events under this heading, the sometimes mysterious providences of God. So if you're taking notes, that's the heading, the sometimes mysterious providences of God. So here's the rest of chapter 20 in this long. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. The people of Israel rose and went to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. 
the people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go up once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I'll give them into your hand. So Israel sent men in ambush around Gibeah, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah and in the open country, about thirty men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, They are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Mariah Geba. And there came against Gibeah ten thousand chosen men out of all Israel. And the battle was hard, but the Benjamites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city. The men of Israel should turn to battle, or turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel, and they said, Surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them, and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjamites, they pursued them and tried them down from Nohah as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. Eighteen thousand men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor, and they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon. Five thousand men of them were cut down on the highways, and they were pursued hard to Gibeon, 
and 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon and remained at the rock of Ramon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, and all that they found. And all the towns that they found, they set on fire. Now it's interesting. Three times Israel cried out before the Lord at Bethel for a specific direction. Now on each of the occasions, the Lord instructed them to do what? Go out into battle. And on day one, they lost 22,000 men. On day two, they lost 18,000 men. Benjamin had mobilized 26,000 along with these 700 left-handers who could sling a stone at a hair and not miss it. In other words, God had told Israel to go up, but on days one and two, they were humiliated by a force that's a small percentage of the full army that Israel brought to the occasion. So here's the question when we consider this. Why in the world did the Lord, who in His providence clearly knew what was about to happen, why did He send Israel into battle knowing that they would lose 10% of their army, 40,000 valiant men? In other words, here's the question. What's going on with this mysterious providence of God? You ever ask that question in your own life? It's a great question. It's hard to say. In the treatise on Judges by Dr. Rail, Dale Ralph Davis, what we've been using in this course, his answer was incredibly insightful to this. And he said, I don't know. <laughs> One source says it might be that with a force of 400,000 warriors, Israel thought dealing with Benjamin was going to be easy. They got a tiny army. We've got this. It's going to be a snap. We'll take care of all of that. And plus, they had consulted the Lord and they had been given this, what was presumably a divine go-ahead. They had what we might call slightly sanctified self-confidence since they had been faithful to ask God what to do. And they said, plus, who needs God when we have ourselves? I don't think that's what they were thinking, but it's a version of thinking something like this. I'm in God's will because I went to church morning and evening. I tithe my checks, so things are going to be okay for me this week when I get into this particular problem that I'm facing. Ever felt that way? One writer points out that Israel's inquiring of the Lord before the first two battles was simply that, just inquiring. That is, something was lacking in the just inquiring with respect to what's going on. In other words, they did. They made these requests. They did this act of going before the Lord without any real sense of deep and sincere dependence on Him for help in the battle. We get a sense of that being the case because after they lost battles one and two, did you notice what they did? They fasted. And then what else? Did you notice? They offered... Burnt offerings. And what does a burnt offering represent? It is an offering because they believed they had sin. In other words, for reasons not clear in the text, something appears 
incomplete in the way in which Israel carried out the very legitimate task of ridding Israel of the Sodom-like sin of the men of Gibeah and the disgusting defense of that sin by Benjamin. What they were doing, what Israel was doing was altogether legitimate. We all agree with that. But something was missing in the going against that sin, which tells us this. On those occasions when we are internally warring against the sin of any description, we need God's help, really, with a sincere and contrite heart. Dr. Davis makes this critical point for all of us to understand God deals with us in mysterious and hidden ways. Elizabeth's illness long, long ago was difficult. And at that time, this is over 40 years ago, Carol and I read a book, Where is God When It Hurts? by Philip Yancey. It was incredibly helpful at an incredibly hard time. And in that book, he makes this point, that many times in our journeys with the Lord, there are certain things he's doing with us that are more important than our comfort and our victories. That is, he's going to work something in our days, in our hearts, that we would not believe even if it were told us. Quoting, I think that's Haggai. Our charge is to learn to become content with these sometimes mysterious providences of the Lord in our lives. Ever face one of those? where you believe you're just going along appropriately in our walk with Christ and up comes a mysterious providence of the Lord. It requires deep discernment to figure out what it is that the Lord may be doing, which means we need the counsel, support, and help of other brothers and sisters in Christ when that sort of thing comes along. Any thoughts about that, anybody? Okay, on the third effort, we know Benjamin was nearly annihilated. <clears throat> as the battle began, everything seemed as during the first two encounters. Benjamin countered the Israel offensive, and Israel actually just pretended to retreat in fear. Benjamin's forces followed, lured by this feigned retreat, while an ambush set by Israel came around from the west and entered the city and set it ablaze. Israel then turned on Benjamin and killed all but 600 men. By the way, when you read this long text, there is at the beginning sort of a summary and then there's a larger explanation in the last half of the chapter. It's a little confusing when you read through it, but that's what was going on. Ultimately, the writer of this account says that the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. That's verse 35. Only 600 men survive. That the Lord did that is fascinating. Would God not have done that for the rest of the period of the judges had Israel appropriately called out to him and gone in sincere faith to deal with the people around him? Did y'all get that question? What's happened is here in this text, as we go back to the beginning part of the book of Judges, we see an extraordinary combined effort to deal with all of those things that the Lord said would happen in Canaan if you don't deal with it. 
Would God have done that faithfully the rest of the period of the judges? And the answer is, sure. And here's why it didn't happen. Ultimately, because every man did what was the theme of the book of Judges, right? What was in his or her own eyes. Now, this staggering victory was so punishing and thoroughgoing that the leaders of Israel cried out in remorse, O Lord, the God of Israel. We're getting that of chapter 21. Why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? Now, the answer to that request, that question, of course, was that Benjamin had aligned itself with the likes of the people of Sodom, ultimately resulting in God himself exacting justice on the entire tribe. But in chapter 21, to which we now quickly turn, we see the sometimes mysterious grace of God. The sometimes mysterious grace of God. Here's that chapter. Follow as I read. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, No one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? Now, let me just interject. Verse 5 is they're trying to figure out a way to address the problem of there being 600 men who have no wives. So verse 5 is sort of a shift in the story. So the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel didn't come up in the assembly? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, one tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left since we've sworn by the Lord that we'll not give them any of our daughters for wives? Everybody get what's happening? They're looking for anybody among Israel who had not given the oath that they would not give their daughters as wives. So verse 8, they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord in Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, get this, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. And this is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the rock of Rimon and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time 
And they gave them the women whom they had saved alive among the women of Jabesh-Gilead. But they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, Well, what shall we do for wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? There were about 200 left, if you're doing the math. Verse 17, they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we can't give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we'll say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so, and took their wives according to their number, from the dancers whom they carried off. And then they went and returned to their inheritance, and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. And then it fittingly concludes with verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So to recap, a vow had been taken before the battle in chapter 20 that no single Israelite would give his daughter to one of any surviving Benjamites. There happened to be 600. So the Israelites set out to discover if there were men who had not come to Mitzvah and made the required vow. And there were in Jabesh Gilead. That was a bad zip code on that day. <laughs> Those people obviously deserved to be killed because they'd refused to join the universal call to arms at the General Assembly in Mitzvah. So, 12,000 men were sent to kill everyone who lived there except for virgin women. And they did, and they took 400 young women and offered them to their brothers and Benjamin. What a story. But the problem, of course, is there's still 200 men left of the Benjamites who had no wives. So the 200 were instructed to do, as you heard a moment ago, and that is to go to the festival at Shiloh and kidnap young women who were dancing, which they did. And if any father or brother complained, the universal answer to them was this, simple. Look, Benjamin needs a break. And don't worry, you didn't break your vow because you didn't give your daughters to those guys to be married. And, of course, as I mentioned a moment ago, the explanation for this extraordinarily bizarre conduct is the last verse. They're just doing what's right in their own eyes. So let me ask you this question. Does this people doing what's right in their own eyes 
include the men who authorized the annihilation of the people in Jabesh Gilead? Probably. I mean, they had made the rash vow that they would not give their wives to any survivors of Benjamin. But then what they did is they destroyed who knows how many people in Jabesh Gilead. Does that same notion of doing what's right in your own eyes apply to the men who were permitted to kidnap daughters of those people near Shiloh? Maybe. It certainly included all the evil men of Gibeah and all the leaders of the Benjamites who endorsed and even protected the gross licential behavior that was going on among the people in Benjamin right before their very eyes. So here's the question. Did any of those guys deserve the grace of God to preserve the covenant line? It is the sometimes mysterious grace of God that for reasons that we just don't understand, He sees fit to grant grace when not many of us would have done that. And that's because that's what God does. Have you ever wondered this? If I had lived in the days of the judges, I wonder what I would have been doing. Think about that. What would it mean for one of us to do what's right in our own eyes? There's an interesting passage in Matthew chapter 23 where the Lord is body slamming the Pharisees because of their vast departure away from the essence of the gospel. And he says to them in one of the seven woes that's there in chapter 23, and he said to the Pharisees who said, you people say that if we lived back in the days of the patriarchs, we never would have done those things they did. Get the point. Those Pharisees said, we'd never have done stuff like that. We would never be like these people who are doing things that were right in their own eyes. The moral of the story is, as we wrap up this study in the book of Judges, we certainly live in a day where people are, in some respects, doing what they believe is right in their own eyes. I wonder what we are doing with respect to how we approach circumstances in which day by day we are presented with offers to compromise our commitment to Him. Perhaps it's fitting for all of us as we wrap up to make this our prayer as we do battle in our culture. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen? All right. Thoughts, anybody? to take his place. 
Yeah, Acts chapter 6. Yeah, that there has not been a worldwide deluge means that it's the mysterious grace of God that he has not condemned the earth because of all that. Anybody else? Father in heaven, we praise you for your sometimes mysterious providences in our lives. And we pray that we would be discerning men and women so that when things seem to be a bit awry in our lives, that we will do business with you with respect to the refinements that you're pursuing in each one of us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Give us, we pray, the presupposition that you are always at work in our hearts and lives, even when we seem to believe that there's silence from heaven. And that applies at every level in our hearts and minds. We pray in our church, here at Grace Presbyterian Church, for an understanding of your mysterious providence as we've been for a year or more seeking to call an associate. And yet, for reasons that are not clear, you've not yet brought to us that man we need. When we think about the extraordinary giftedness of David Gilbert, we look around and we see empty seats on the Lord's Day and we wonder why there's 300 people every service. They hear the word so faithfully proclaimed, Lord, it's just one of your mysterious providences. Please make your kingdom to come on earth and your will to be done in our community. And then, Lord, help us to be those who are alert to the sometimes mysterious avenues of grace that you work all around us. Some of us are praying for family members who don't know you and who are in danger of dying apart from you. We pray, O oh Lord God, that your supernatural grace would move at this level, that is with our own family members and friends, and then through the entire planet so that glory would be brought to your name. Help us to be those who are in, engaged in the expansion of the gospel for your great kingdom's sake, we pray. Amen.